You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. Father James Shaw, and I want to continue at the limits of political philosophy. Chapter 9 is called Virtue and Vice, the Rule of the Self over the Self. And it's basically about the structure of Aristotle's ethics. And it begins with a citation from Samuel Johnson from 1778, in which the following following remarks are made. The fallacy of that book, namely the fable of the bees, is that Bernard de Mandeville, who wrote it, it was 1670 to 1733, uh, defines neither vices nor benefits. He reckons among vices everything that gives pleasure, and he takes the uh, narrowness, narrowest systems of morality, uh, monastic morality, which holds pleasure itself to be a vice, such as eating salt with our fish because it makes it, uh, it uh, makes it eat better. And he reckons uh, wealth as a public benefit, which is by no means always true. Pleasure of itself is not a vice. Having a garden uh, which we all know uh, to be perfectly innocent, is a great pleasure. At the same time, in this state of being, there are many pleasures, uh, vices, many pleasures and pleasurable vices, which, however, are so eminently agreeable that we can hardly abstain from them. The happiness of heaven will be that pleasure and virtue will be perfectly uh, consistent to each other. So we'll begin with the first one about the meaning of virtue and vice. The classical authors provided adequate, yet somehow insufficient, definitions of what was uh, meant by human virtue. They asked, what is virtue? Is its own reward? Does it lead beyond itself by being itself to happiness, say, or even a salvation? The clearest and most authoritative discussion of human virtue and vice is found in Aristotle's ethics and his politics, though one cannot forget either Plato or Cicero, Augustine or Aquinas on these same topics. Aristotle simply said that happiness is acting virtuously. St. Thomas added that virtue was the ultimate potency, by which uh, he meant that that virtue is the actualization of all of the capacities given to man to perfect in this life. Since virtue leads to a particular, particularly graphic, in a particularly graphic manner, to the limits of human actions, both personal and political. I think it important here to devote some time to a restating what is perhaps familiar, uh, yet too long often neglected, in uh, reflecting among in reflections arising uh, from political philosophy. Our primary understanding of the very notion of rule comes from our uh, rule of ourselves. All political rule is analogous to the initial sense of rule, this initial sense of rule in ourselves. The very discipline of uh, reflecting back upon our own powers and acts remains the intellectual grounding of our own uh, realization. Uh, that even at its best, human virtue is not just for itself. 
To live a good human life means to rule by our own uh, discipline, uh, understanding and choice our given capacities and to cause them to do what we ought to do uh, through them. All human virtue has two origins. The first is from nature by which we are what we are, that is, human beings. The second is from our own uh, internal powers and will by which we activate our given capacities uh, from our nature to know, to fear, to delight, to be angry, to be truthful, uh, even just to be uh, pleasant to our neighbors. Sometimes these are called, as we uh, previously noted, first nature and second nature, um, uh, to distinguish the reality of what we are uh, from what in ourselves is the uh, result of our own uh, particular choices and actions. Aristotle's position remains um, that foundation in common sense and in philosophy against which the brilliant errors are examined and on the basis of which anything found in on the uh, further horizon of political philosophy must be compared. I will proceed with a rather detailed statement of Aristotle here. He reminds us of realities within ourselves about, the, about whose meaning he is still the uh, best teacher. He also best suggests uh, those uh, questions about the ends of virtue which, uh, with which we continue to grapple uh, to in uh, considerations of political philosophy. An interrelated order exists among our given human capacities. Each separate capacity or power uh, we possess is related in its own way to man's two higher powers, the capacity to know and to choose. Man is not like other animals which are complete in being born and in following their instincts. He must complete himself by acting in the world with what he uh, uh, initially is given. Man's coming into being does not depend on himself, but, he, but on his uh, completion. His happiness uh, in some fundamental sense does depend upon himself. Otherwise, he could not properly uh, be said to be capable of his own uh, particular happiness. Man's action in this world passes through his rule of himself. We cannot understand political philosophy, either the brilliant errors or of its history or a sane analysis of virtue and vice in the human being without constantly recalling Aristotle's discussion. I propose this uh, reflection on virtue and vice here primarily as a guide to that horizon of meaning uh, to which virtue uh, in particular leads us. We have previously indicated the problem connected with vice, though I will touch upon this subject here also. According to Aristotle's teaching, virtue and vice are acquired uh, by particular acts of virtue and vice. Thought is not enough. To be just, we must both know what justice is and actually do a just act when the occasion demands. To be cowardly, we must 
perform a cowardly act. What is given to us is not the virtue or the vice itself, but the capacity or the power to act this way or that. The words virtue and vice refer to what Aristotle called habits. A habit is a specific um, uh, modification of a given capacity. A habit enables us to do easily and almost automatically uh, what we want to do, whether it be throwing a ball or acting uh, generously uh, with our wealth or whatever. Every act, however, is uh, attributed not to the capacity or the power to act, but to the whole person who acts. It is Socrates, not just his will or reason who acts and who is just or unjust. We are responsible for our habits because they exist in us through our own chosen human acts. We are brave or temperate in our actions, not simply because we can define bravery or modesty or moderation. As Aristotle taught, it is not enough to know the definition of a brave of, of brave things. Uh, we must do brave things. Aristotle taught us that all virtue stood in the in the middle or mean between two vices, one vice too much and one too little. Courage, the guidance of our fears, stood uh, midway between rashness and cowardice. Aristotle was not simply postulating the, uh, that such extremes existed. Rather, his writing, his written work, was intended uh, to direct our attention to what were on, what goes on within us. The raw material of Aristotle's book exists within us, where we uh, must first recognize it if we are to understand ourselves or his arguments. Every virtue with its two opposing vices has its own subject, its own subject matter. The subject matter of bravery or courage, for instance, was our own interior uh, fears or pains in all their uh, varieties. Not to have fears or pains would mean that we were not human beings. The virtue of bravery or the vice of cowardice was uh, formed uh, within us by continual acts of bravery or cowardice. The only way we could acquire the virtue of bravery or change it uh, to the vice of cowardice uh, would be by particular acts uh, of ruling or not ruling or fears or uh, pains. Through our particular acts, we ruled ourselves. We were responsible for our form of rule that we placed in our characters. These habits and choices define the sort of happiness we choose for ourselves in each of our acts. The second subject is virtue, vice, and political philosophy. Aristotle's insistence that virtue or vice is acquired only by specific acts of the virtue or the vice in question is in part his criticism of the a theory of Socrates who held that virtue was knowledge. Aristotle realized that we, uh, that to know the definition of justice, for example, uh, however necessary, uh, was not in itself sufficient to make one just. Our billfold must not, uh, was not safe 
uh, for a neighbor knew the definition of justice, but did not form himself with the proper habit to be just in all acts. Our security and peace depends on the virtue acquired by others. Aristotle's first concern was that we actually have virtues as something proper to our own, that is, as something known and chosen by us. Our character is the particular combination of virtue and vice that make up each of us. A classification of Aristotle's discussion of virtue and vice is useful here. In books 2, 3, and 7 of his Ethics, Aristotle considers uh, the way we could habitually stand to our own actions. Though we might act this way or that uh, in the beginning, we came to uh, do or not to do certain things on a regular basis. While we might do otherwise in particular cases, after a certain point in our lives, we usually did not act in a way contrary to our habits and our character. Aristotle listed six possible ways uh, we could rule ourselves in relation to our actions. We could be superhumanly virtuous. We could be virtuous. We could be uh, continent. We could be incontinent. Uh, we could be vicious. Or we could be bestial. For Aristotle, most people, with regard to most virtues and vices, were either continent or incontinent. Only rarely did we find human beings who were uh, superhumanly virtuous or totally bestial. But such persons do exist and need to be accounted for. Few human beings were fully virtuous or fully vicious. Their character was perfectly formed to do always the right thing or always the wrong thing when it, the occasion occurred. The continent person, uh, for the most part, did the right thing, but was on occasion capable of doing the wrong thing. The incontinent person uh, usually did the wrong thing, but might still, on occasion, do the right thing. He was not wholly vicious. That is, he was still aware of the attraction of doing the right thing. In those observations, Aristotle implicitly acknowledged that most people, most of the time, were imperfect. Their weak or disordered actions were factors in the world and could not be ignored. Aristotle accounted for the rarity of the worst and the best uh, without compromising the validity of the best. Aristotle did not say, as Thrasymachus in the Republic maintained, or as Machiavelli was later uh, to advocate, that what men do do was the only criterion of their virtue. The philosopher and the good man were, in fact, rare. Aristotle affirmed that an object, an objective standard of the human good is something given in reality in each human act, whether we choose to do it or not. Ethics and politics were valid practical sciences independently of our putting into being their highest or lowest forms. This truth is no doubt one of the most perplexing ones in political philosophy. The criterion of what it was to be a good person was not subjective, 
was not subject to human artistic capacity to ma of making or doing at the beginning at, as if the rightness of human actions could be conceived independently uh, of a given givenness of human nature. Though we could and did act wrongly, we could not avoid the fact that some things were wrong independently of our making them so. Human dignity uh, and its capacity for nobility depends upon uh, defending this insight that good was good even if it did not accomplish it in ourselves. Law and punishment. Whether we accept or reject Aristotle, his treatment of this topic of human action and its condition remains that against which um, we, uh, we must understand our nature and tradition. His teaching is a, the quickest and most easily accessible way uh, to the heart of questions that are proper, uh, that are properly those of political philosophy and philosophy itself. The treatment of the virtues and the vices forms the intelligible core of the nature and limits of politics. Implicit in Aristotle's treatment of virtue and vice is a teaching about law and punishment that classical uh, classifies character and uh, polity based on more or less grave deviations from the good. These deviations can be understood even if we do not put them into our own being, character, or polity. Aristotle defined law as reason without passion to indicate what it was that mostly interfered with our seeing the truth of our actions, namely our passions. Along with ignorance and force, extreme passion will be one of the legitimate reasons to mitigate or remove uh, our uh, moral responsibility for our actions. Though we should uh, control our passions, Aristotle recognized them that even the best men uh, could not always uh, uh, completely do so. Punishment was designed in part to prevent wrong actions uh, when reason or habit did not suffice. Fear of punishment, in many instances, prevented bad activities and therefore uh, the creation of bad habits. But beyond the hindering of evil acts, Plato taught that punishment should even be desired because in it we recognize the disorder we put into the world by our evil actions. The acceptance of legitimate punishment acknowledges the objective wrong in our evil actions. It also allows us to acknowledge that we know the res uh, result of our wrong actions and wish to repair the resultant disorder. After their unsuccessful plot to kill Henry V was discovered in Shakespeare's play, um, Sir Thomas Gray and the other conspirators said to Henry, quote, Never did faithful subject more rejoice at the discovery of most dangerous uh, treason than I do at this hour, joy, or myself, uh, prevented from a damned enterprise, my fault, but not my body, pardon, sovereign. And Henry did forgive him his fault, but not his body, 
Henry's reasoning on how to punish turned precisely on what it would mean uh, to the realm had he had the actual crime been carried out. He says, touching our person, seek we no revenge, but we, our kingdom's safety, must so tender, whose ruin you have sought, that to her, to her laws, we do deliver you. The relation of punishment to forgiveness becomes another of the transcendent questions posed by political politics to political philosophy. The next section is called the capacity to do evil. Does not the difficulty of acquiring virtue imply something uh, intrinsically wrong or, ev or evil about human nature itself? Or if one, or if not, as it did not in Aristotle or Aquinas, what is the justification for human nature as it is? This justification must deal with the metaphysics of evil as it appears in ethics and political life. Theoretically, we could deny that evil is evil, which would betray our experience of human actions. Or we could propose a cause for our evil actions to ourselves, which when it was defined, we could uh, seek out our, uh, seek by our own powers through some political or economic uh, program or uh, to eliminate. This latter is the utopian or the modern solution. And finally, we could seek to understand how the possible and repeated performances of evil acts is located in the human person and the power of choice itself. The power is good. How is it that we do evil? Aristotle's explanation of this problem is found in Book 7 of the Ethics, and it was called the Practical Syllogism. It presupposes uh, his discussion of the voluntary and the involuntary, which appears in Book 3. He, started, he stated that if an action uh, could not properly be uh, attributed to our own agency because uh, ignorance, passion, or fear interfered, the action did not uh, proceed from human choice. Knowledge and choice were both necessary elements in these uh, variable uh, free actions uh, deserving of praise or blame that we put into the world. Aristotle recognized that we always act with some reason. We can always explain why this or that action of ours uh, was done rightfully, even when we think it was wrong. We recognize that we had a choice of logic or uh, pr premise in most of our actions. And while we always act to be happy in everything we do, we can and do choose how we argue this happiness in particular acts. In each of our acts, even our evil ones, um, a distinct good is achieved. Paradoxically, we cannot do anything wrong unless we also do something right. Something that belongs to someone else, for example, may also be good or desirable as, say, food or clothing. We can argue that we <clears throat> ate or took this thing because it was tasty or warm, which it was. 
but at the same time we avert our gaze from the proposition that should consider this same action as including the property of someone else. We commit evil by refusing to consider the whole uh, situation in our act. What we want takes precedence over the objective situation. Evil was incorporated into our action because we knew that we were not per permitting the whole reality of the object to be included in the immediate reasoning process that produced our particular action. We always can and do justify our actions because some good element was in it. But we do not admit that we were aware of these circumstances that we chose not to, under, to consider. This deliberate avoidance of the whole picture is where our fault came to, into being, into our being, and why we can be blamed for our action. A virtuous act has the same structure as an evil act. In that case, we are aware of the possibility of doing something wrong or of doing something less good or noble in our action. But we choose to do just to act properly. The implicit possibility of acting wrongly is what gives acting rightly its dramatic and ethical status. The, the next section is called Intellectual Capacity. Aristotle's ethics and politics, in spite of some difficulties uh, uh, with our present text, form a single whole designed to discuss the um, implications of human action. Aristotle wanted to know about human actions insofar as we ruled ourselves our families, and our polity, <clears throat> in, which, uh, in which we, as an organized group of human beings, lived, lived and uh, carried out our lives. The very basis and model of the notion of what it is to rule was the rule of ourselves over ourselves in those areas over which we had some rational uh, control, that is, with our practical intellect and wills. Following Plato, we could look upon ourselves as a kind of small kingdom over which we had the obligation to rule well. The single mind that each human person possesses as a constitutive part of his own given being, when used to rule himself, to guide him, uh, to achieve to some proposed purpose or project, was called the practical intellect. When the same intellect, you only have one intellect, when the same intellect was used not to know the purpose of action, but simply to know the truth uh, or falsity of something, uh, it was called speculative or theoretical intellect or mind. We could act not for some practical purpose, but for the act itself, for its own sake. Knowing was such an act. The drive of our mind to know is caused by wonder about what is there uh, before us in the world through no cause of our own. What is not ourselves is there before us. We want to know the answer, what is it? We can desire to know something for no other purpose than just to know it. But we ultimately want to know all that is. 
And Aristotle defined the mind as the power capable of being all things. What was not ourselves, the rest of creation, returned uh, to us through our power to know. We become more by our knowledge without changing anything in the creation but ourselves. Our perfection was not just to be or to act in our own limited uh, area, arena, but to know all that was not ourselves. We encountered what was not ourselves as already made, already there. It became ours when we proceeded to know it uh, without ceasing to be what it is. To act correctly, Aristotle argued, that we should know these things about ourselves and about our ways of knowing and acting in the world. This was the burden of Book 6 of the Ethics, the kinds of human acts. In his ethical and political books, Aristotle dealt with those activities that proceed out of human beings insofar as each person forms a whole in which both mind and matter belong together as proper ingredients in a single human life. When Aristotle treated in his ethics and political works, uh, what he treated was man as he is in this life, someone who comes into being at conception and passes out of life at death. Man is not two beings, body and soul, as Plato seemed to say, but one being composed of both body and soul. Whether this same human being had a pre-existence, as Plato sometimes thought, or an immortal soul, was not directly relevant to these considerations of the practical life, though the question was important even practically. Those activities that included both our intelligence and our passions were the specific subject matter of the ethics. Such activities made the human being the kind of person that he was ultimately to be, for they were all directed or ordered to that end, that happiness, according to which each one defines himself uh, as his own proper actions, his own choices. Speculative or theoretical questions were of the highest order in Aristotle. Practical life, which included politics as the most important of the practical sciences, was itself ordained to the speculative life. The ability to think correctly presupposed the right ordering of the capacities and the virtues. The philosopher's vocation was the noblest, but Aristotle did not think that the philosopher should also be a king. He recognized two different legitimate roles. This recognition is why in Aristotle there are books both of metaphysics and ethics and politics. In the area of human action, two broadly differing uh, possibilities can be identified. Things to be made and thoughts and things to be done. The arts and crafts deal with the things to be made. Prudence uh, guided and ruled for the uh, things to be done. The purpose of arts and crafts was to make a good object, say a, a, a handsaw. A craftsman knew what a saw was. The craftsman formulated his idea and uh, specifically uh, uh, ordered his material 
and his work so that he could fashion a saw that existed outside of his mind and did what it was supposed to, to do, that is, saw wood. Only at that point was the craft work properly accomplished. St. Thomas would state, state Aristotle's principle as the right order of things to be made. Not just any object of which saw wood, but only a properly made saw. The purpose or nature of a saw was to do what it was designed to do. But this instrument could not have existed without some human being to put it into being. Saws do not appear in nature. It is a perfection of, hum of human, both human and non-human, uh, that, that human art and craft can fashion things for human purposes. Nature can be improved by craft. Yet, since all things made by craft are also results of human purpose or design, art and craft are ruled in their turn by prudence, which uh, subsumes them into the order of human action. The craftsman does not cease to be a man. He always needs a proper understanding of what he is, of how he relates to the world and to others. <clears throat> we can make paintings and artifacts. We can produce beautiful things to exist outside of ourselves, things that go on after uh, our making action has ceased. We can turn back on ourselves to recognize that there are things in us that can be ruled or guided by our own intellectual and voluntary efforts. We are, when we rule ourselves in those things uh, that we find in us capable of being ruled, we are said to be using practical intellect as, direct, as directed to ourselves. One of the main goals of life is properly to rule ourselves in those areas over which we have some direct control, in those areas uh, for which we are praised or blamed. Happiness and human activity. To live virtuously and or viciously meant that a human being looking inwardly at those things over which he had the possibility of self-rule, managed to rule himself well or ill. For Aristotle, virtue and vice depended on the uh, prior consideration of happiness. The subject matter of Book 1 and 10 of the Ethics uh, was on this topic of happiness. Happiness meant that there was an ultimate reason or aim in all things that we did. Happiness defined the sort of being that a person uh, chose himself to be, both how the person saw the world and how its meaning uh, related to himself. The ultimate distinction of human beings is not according to race, nation, talent, or talent. Rather, it is according to what they considered to be their good and what, on the basis of this good, they choose to do or not to do in their actions. Everyone's evil is a function of what is his good. This good will be subject to the criterion of 
philosophy, that is, to a rational examination about what is the true good in relation to uh, uh, a chosen good. Aristotle observed that we do everything we do in order to be happy, but we have, but we had to reflect on what happiness might mean. We had to uh, sort sort out the different um, claimants uh, for it uh, for it that men usually demonstrate in their actions and in their theories. We as individuals or uh, members of a, pol a polity could um, err in what the, de the definition or reality of actual happiness was. Happiness was not whatever we thought it was. A criterion of happiness existed according to our nature, and we are not free uh, to alter it, but only discover it. Our freedom consists in doing what we ought to do, not in doing what we could do with uh, no uh, other criterion uh, than our own choosing. On the basis of observation, Aristotle listed the general answers that men uh, have, uh, by their actions, gave to the questions of happiness. Some acted as if happiness were identical with wealth, others with pleasure, others with political honor, and others with the self's own choice, and others with um, truth or uh, contemplation. Human beings had themselves uh, to decide as to what purpose they oriented their own practical actions. They had to select what purpose they had in mind when they acted. They were free to choose their end, but not free to make any arbitrary end the real purpose of human living as such. They lived under the doom of making wrong choices or the glory of making right ones. Families and cities were groups of people living together for the same purposes, wealth, honor, liberty, pleasure, uh, or truth. Families and polities manifested the external pattern of choices that took place in the hearts of individuals. Regimes or constitutions reflected the character of their citizens. The forms of regime or constitutions were ways to uh, improve or secure the source of happiness uh, the citizens had chosen for themselves. An oligarchy, for example, was a regime composed of people who had effectively chosen wealth as their end or purpose, uh, as purpose of human living. These people, with the same ends, had organized themselves in order to continue or to, um, to a constitution whose order um, enhanced and fulfilled this end which they identified with human happiness as such. The real problem of ethics and politics lie not in the external forms or institutions, but in the human choice. Nothing will ultimately happen uh, for better or worse except at that inner level. The position was not individualism in a modern sense, but an effort to see uh, the individual in terms of his actual nature and uh, composition in uh, relation to himself and others. Political regimes and institutions uh, reinforced or fostered 
these ends, good or bad, made uh, in the in the hearts of the citizens. The invisible inner life of the individual was primary location of a kind of um, motion or activity that was unique in the universe. Its status was uh, uh, above uh, natural activities, uh, not subject to human choice. A man was not only a being from nature, but also a being uh, whose activity um, uh, made himself more fully what he was to be, or if he chose to deviate from what he ought to be. Man was both the worst and the best of living creatures because of his capacity to choose how he would form himself in his actions and deeds. Uh, in one disturbing sense, the distance between virtue and vice was not very great. The same person could choose either a good or a bad form of life. Yet the distance between virtue and vice was the greatest chasm in the human universe, since the distinction between good and evil was as such absolute. Heaven and hell, in whatever form they might appear, are reflections of our need to maintain the fundamental nature of this distinction. So this is the end of the first part of uh, chapter 9. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.